I'd like to welcome you all again to Providence Road. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And if you're a guest with us today, we're really honored that you would choose to spend a Sunday morning worshiping with us. We're continuing on in this series where we're walking through the book of John, the Gospel of John. And today we find ourselves, as you saw in that reading, where on this occasion where Jesus, we see probably Jesus get the most angry he got in his ministry, maybe in his whole life, but there that we see in the scriptures that we're going to really dig into um, today. So let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for um, these, these things that were written down by um, your son's followers, the early followers, so we can now, 2,000 some odd years later, we can go back and we can really see and, and, and put ourselves back in this story um, that is, uh, that is a, a really clear picture of, of the character of Jesus. And we get to see your character come out too through your son and the way he um, approached the situation in the temple. Help us today understand your word. Help us today um, internalize your word and allow it to change us from the inside out. And I pray that we would um, be changed now and be different people when we leave this place and be um, encouraged and, um, and yeah, encouraged to live out the gospel um, in our day-to-day lives this week. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. In C.S. Lewis's book, um, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's this scene where Edmund and Lucy are um, walking, and they're, um, they're, they're out in this, in this valley, and I think Lewis describes it as this expanse of, of green. Right? As far as they can see, it's just a green, lush field. But there's this one white like, spot really far in the distance, in the middle of the green, and they decide to go check it out, so they get a little bit closer, and it gets a little bit bigger, but they still can't tell what it is. They, they go a little further, and they still can't tell what it is. So they get really close to it, and they finally see that it's a lamb. There's a lamb in this middle of this green field, and this lamb is pure and white, and it's cooking breakfast for them. And obviously, in Lewis's allegory, this is to represent, most people think, the, the um, when Jesus fed his disciples fish on the beach after he um, rose from the dead. But they begin to talk to this lamb as he's given them breakfast, and they begin asking the lamb how they can get to the land of Aslan or to heaven. And as the lamb begins explaining how to get there, he begins to change. And this is the way Lewis describes it in the story. His snowy white flushed into tawny gold, And his size changed, and he was Aslan himself, towering above them and scattering light from his mane. And that right there, this gives us a great picture. And what Lewis is trying to drive home here is that at the same time in the character of Jesus, Jesus is um, the Lamb of God, the pure Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But he is also at the same time the mighty Lion of Judah that should be feared. And he's ferocious. And, and today, we're going to, get to, going to get to see that lion side of Jesus come out when he gets angry. And boy, does Jesus get angry in the passage we're going to look at today. And this brings up questions when we read this passage, like, is it ever okay to get angry? 
Like we are often grown up, you know, get taught growing up, like we, we should never get angry or all anger is bad. Is it? Is there a difference between sinful anger and righteous anger? And if there is a difference, what is the difference? How do we know the difference? Where does one stop and the other begin? How do motivations come into um, anger and that emotion that we've all felt? And maybe um, some of us feel it more than others. And so in this story today that we're going to look at, we really get to see this side of Jesus come out, the lion of, of Jesus, the Lion of Judah, and how he approaches what is happening in the temple. Now, this occasion, Jesus cleansing the temple, is brought up in the other three Gospels as well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But they have it at the end of their books, towards, towards the, uh, the, the, the passion narrative and the crucifixion. Um, and, but John here has it at the very beginning of his letter, or his, his, his Gospel. And so it's kind of stumped people for a while. Was there two of these occasions that happened? And most commentators think, no, there was still just one event like this that happened. But the other three writers of those Gospels were more concerned with getting the right chronology, right? making sure that things happened in the order that they actually happened, whereas John is more theological. He's not as concerned about chronology, especially the, the kind of the little details and the little things Jesus did throughout the gospel. He's trying to make a point theologically. He's arranging these things in a more topical way to make that point and less about kind of what happened next and what happened next. And here's the flow of the three years of Jesus. No, John um, has more of a theological approach. So this is why he's, there's a, so there's a reason why John has, has kind of moved this up into the beginning of his letter. And it's interesting that he puts it after, we kind of got out of order because I had COVID a few weeks ago and Jay stepped in and preached. So two weeks ago, Jay preached on um, the wedding at Cana where Jesus turns the water into wine. And that is the, the story that directly comes before this in chapter two. And in that story, you get to see the side of Jesus where he cares so much about the details that he cares to, he wants to help this family try to save face because their wine has run out. And that would be a horrible thing in that culture. So Jesus, even the little details about, I want to help this family not be embarrassed. I want this party to be better. So I'm going to turn water into wine. And he adds something to the wedding. And, and, and it's this, this party that Jesus kind of came in and made better. You get to see the, kind of that, that lighter side of Jesus, kind of interjecting joy into a situation. But right after this, John puts this story of Jesus getting angry and cleansing the temple. And John does this intentionally. Listen to John um, 1, 14. We, we looked at this a few weeks ago, but it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That last phrase, full of grace and truth. In the first part of the chapter, chapter 2 of John, the wedding, we get to see the gracious side of Jesus the gentle side of Jesus, the fun side of Jesus. And now in this passage, Jesus is going to bring the heat. He's going to bring truth. He's going to be clear and he's going to have passion and zeal in how he does it. So I think John is putting these things together to give us kind of bookends to these signs that Jesus is going to do. Because remember, this isn't the traditional order that Jesus did these things in. So John wants us to read the rest of this gospel of John, having on our minds these signs that Jesus performed. The wedding, and now the cleansing of the temple. 
And some um, scholars even go far, commentators go far, that, you, that John is also trying to kind of put uh, themes together that often sometimes we, we separate, like love and justice. And the blood of Jesus being water to wine, wine to blood in the, in the Passover um, and, and, the, and communion. So blood, and then this week we're going to talk about the body, his temple, the church. And so even there's some connection there. You have the cross and the resurrection, Right? And so you have these Im- this imagery that even John could be aiming at with um, organizing this the way he has. So let's look at, let's dig into this in verse 13. First verse here in this passage. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Another characteristic about John is he ties these signs to festivals or important events in the Jewish calendar. We're going to see a lot of that moving forward, that he's marking these things that happened when the, 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 the Jewish people and their culture were doing, having a festival. There was an important day on the calendar. So it's Passover, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So he walks into Jerusalem, verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So there's people selling animals, and then there's money changers, kind of two separate groups of people. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. I want you to imagine this. He drives them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So there, there's a lot going on here, right? You imagine the chaos that's happening, right? He comes in, he makes this whip, he comes into the temple, and he is scat- like scattering people. You can imagine the, the oxen and the sheep running like crazy all over the, this part of the temple. And then there's coins jingling and dangling everywhere on the floor because he's dumping them out. He's, he's turning over tables. Like This is a chaotic scene. And Jesus is trying to make a point. He's trying to make a point in causing a scene here. So what was the problem? Right? When Jesus gets this anger, we need to know what in the world has got Jesus so worked up. Well, there were two primary things. Number one, um, the primary one was an issue of location. There was a whole economy built around these festivals and the sacrifices, and, and the Jewish people needed to buy animals to take those. To the, and there's, there's nothing wrong with people selling animals for people who needed them to sacrifice, but it's all about location. Like, Jesus is like, why are you doing this here? Like, just step outside and sell these things outside. Don't do this inside of the temple or the temple grounds. And we'll get to that here in a second, more about how the temple was constructed. The second issue, um, it, see, it appears that, that there, if you, if you uh, read about the tradition there, there was a, um, the, the Jewish people had to bring a, uh, a shekel, a small coin, as kind of a, a, to, to, as, a, as, a, as an offering when they came for Passover to make sacrifices. Well, the currency in that day and age was Roman. It was kind of like today, we don't carry around like nickels and dimes anymore. It, we, we may have a quarter every once in a while, but we don't carry around that kind of change, right? And so we often have to like figure out, well, how am I going to get change? And we may not even have a, a dollar, right? We've got to figure out a dollar so we can get change to get that quarter for whatever we need. Similar thing. 
And so these money changers sat up there, and they had an idea, right? Sneaky guys. They said, okay, we're going we're gonna to set up here, and when they bring their Roman currency here, we're going to have Jewish currency to give them back, but we're going we're gonna to tr- charge them the transaction fee. We all know transaction fees in our day, right? That 2.75%, like we're going to charge them that, and so we're going to make them pay more of the Roman currency for them to get this shekel back because that's what they needed to go in to make their sacrifices. That was part of it. So they were totally taking advantage of the, the poor and people who couldn't afford that extra little, um, that transaction fee in a sense, to go in. And so there's two things happening here that really makes Jesus mad. Now, I want to put a quick picture of the temple on the screen here. We're not going to get too much into this. Don't worry about trying to read the writing. I couldn't find one with the blown up writing. But the most important thing to, to notice here is um, right there at the very bottom where it says east, just above the east, you'll see it says court of the Gentiles. And so the, the temple was designed in these kind of concentric rectangles, right? You had the Holy of Holies, and then, and then you moved out a little bit, and a few more people were allowed to go in that, priests and such. And then on the, on the outside of that, you had Jewish men. On the outside of that, you had Jewish women. And then on the outside of that, kind of that last layer was the court of the Gentiles, right? And this is more of a... Um, Something that has happened over time. This is Herod's temple. This is the the second or third temple that was built, depending on how you classify that. But this court of Gentiles became kind of a thing that that a a separate area, which is not really something God designed the temple in the first place. But yeah, you can go and take that down. Um, But it's important to visualize that court of the Gentiles is where this was happening. Where this was occurring was in that court of Gentiles, right? Gentiles, again, were people who were not pure. From a, from, a, from a Jewish law sense, right? People who were outsiders. But they created a court there. The intention was that people, the Gentiles, even though they couldn't go into the temple, they could come and they could listen. They could learn. They could worship. You had these things, you had people called God-fears, they were referred to. They were people of Gentile um, ethnicity, but they, they were curious about the God of the Old Testament. They were curious about God's people and wanted to know more. So, of course, they wanted to create this place where they could come and, and wrestle with things and understand the teachings and, and be close so they could end up worshiping God. That's what that court of Gentiles was for. And this is where that is happening, outside in the court of Gentiles. This is where the money changers were. They had turned this into a mall. They had turned this into a market, and Jesus is not happy. And the other, um, right in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he says, um, you've, you've made this place a den of robbers, right? A den of robbers, right? Strong. Like, like you're thieves. You're a bunch of thieves here. This is where you come together and, and you scheme and you take money from people who don't have enough. So Jesus is angry. The, the, the temple had been corrupted and Jesus was sick of it. And again, we, I often have read this early on when I first started reading this and the first several times I read this. I, I imagine that Jesus just flies off the handle like most of us do when we get angry, right? It's just this instinct reaction where Jesus happens to like double take. Oh, they're like selling stuff over there. I'm gonna go take care of this. That is not the way it happened. And really a couple of keys. Number one, he actually has to make a cord. He has to make a whip of, of cords. And you just don't, he just, Jesus didn't pull that out of his back pocket, Right? Um, or back place where the robe he had on, or whatever. Um, he had to go do it, right? He had to, it was a calculated decision for Jesus to step away and make the whip and then come back and clean it out, right? 
So that's one clue we have, that this wasn't an impulse reaction of Jesus. Second of all, we know from the life of Jesus that probably every year as a child, he, was, he went up to Jerusalem for Passover. So Jesus is early 30s at this point, and for 30 years, year after year at the Passover, he would go up into the temple, and he saw this happening year after year after year. This wasn't a new tradition. This wasn't a new custom. Jesus had seen this, and he, and he was sick of it. He's, he was sick of it, and now he was, he, was, he was in ministry. He was kind of a public figure. He's like, I'm, I'm sick of this. I'm going to do something about it. So he, it's this calculated anger that Jesus has. Now, let's read Amos 5, 21 through 24. Listen to what the prophet Amos says about towards the end of the Old Testament. This is kind of what the temple had fallen into, uh, fallen into and this is what Amos had to say about the Jewish people and kind of their their um, activity around the temple. Verse 21, I hate, I despise your feasts. That includes Passover, right? And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Verse 22, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream right so this is what the prophet had to say about the kind of that late period of the old testament the church um the the, the temple in jerusalem there this is before the temple at herod was built right this is in the old temple and it so it seems like the old testament kind of leaves us with this this picture of bleakness when it comes to could can god's people ever like have god in their presence and not mess things up And we see in verse 17, back into John, at the end of this, his disciples remembered that it was written. It's like they recalled there after all this had happened, zeal for your house will consume me. This is a quote from Psalm 69. So his disciples remembered Psalm 69. Oh, yeah. Okay, so this is what zeal looks like. This is what zeal for your house looks like, the way Jesus handled this. So why is Jesus so worked up about the temple? Briefly, let's talk about the temple. We could spend a whole sermon series on the temple, but briefly, um, temple is all about God's presence. You know, God's presence is arguably the most important theme in the scriptures, right? Genesis 1 and 2, right? God creates man and woman, Adam and Eve in the garden. God's presence is with them. It's the key characteristic there. God was with Adam and Eve, period. Face to face, like right there. All of who God is was right there. Genesis 3, we know what happens. Adam and Eve sin. They are removed from the garden. And now humans cannot be in God's presence um, kind of unfiltered anymore. Things have to be done so they can be in God's presence. God asked Moses when they're wandering in, many years later, wandering in the wilderness, says, hey, make a tent or a tabernacle for me to dwell with you. God wanted to dwell with his people. He wanted to be the center of all of their lives. So just make this physical thing where I can dwell. And he really did dwell there. It wasn't a, this wasn't a sign. This wasn't symbolism. It, 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 God actually dwelled. The presence of God dwelled in this tent, in this tabernacle. And many years later, um, they built the temple. Solomon built the temple, first temple, and now they had a physical, permanent location, same idea. This is where God's presence was. It was attached to a physical location. That's why the feasts and the festivals were all in Jerusalem. They all centered around the temple and sacrifices on the same altar. Everything was about the temple. It's the place where heaven and earth met. 
You think about that, right? Like heaven and earth were separated, especially after Genesis 2, and the temple is the one place where the God of heaven and humans met. Now, it wasn't meeting without a lot of things in between, like a priest and a in a temple, in the Holy of Holies, in a curtain, in sacrifices. There was a lot that went into that. But nonetheless, this is where God's presence dwelt. They mess it up. They become corrupted. The leaders rebel. God judges Israel in the form of the Babylonians coming in, kind of conquering Israel, taking God's people, putting them in exile, capturing them, taking them away, and destroying the temple. This was God's judgment on the people of Israel because they weren't um, the, the, kind of the, what Amos we just read there. Their, their hearts were far from God. Even though they kept doing all the things, they, weren't, they didn't have the character. They weren't really following God. They weren't loving God. They weren't worshiping God. Many years later, a few people returned from exile, rebuilt the temple. But once again, God's people, God's leaders in God's people, they, they turned away from God. They turned away from God, and it fell into corruption once again. And so, the, once again, the Old Testament ends when we think about the temple. Like, how many times can God's people mess this up? Right? They have a physical location where they know God dwells, and yet they can't even follow the guidelines to worship. Their hearts are far from God. They're distracted by other things, idols and such and other things. And then you have John 1. This is the beautiful part of reading this in context. Now, John 1 comes. Again, this is all about presence, right? Dwelling, presence. This is God dwelt with his people. And then John 1, we read it at the beginning. John 1, 14. The word became flesh. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Like for us, like those bells don't go off if we don't know and we're not steeped in Old Testament, kind of that temple culture. But he set up his tent with us. He came to us. Like the tent, the tabernacle, the temple was here, but it was a man. He was human. He was in human form. Let's go back into John 2, verse 18. Let's keep going. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Like what gives you the right? And I, you know, I mean, this is an honest question, right? Jesus has just created a mess. It's chaotic. He's angry. I mean, probably even as the disciples, like, what is wrong? Like, just, it just, I mean, and, and pro- I'm, I'm imagining him making that, making that cord. And they're like, hey, hey, but, hey, what, what are you doing? What, what, what are you, you going to do with that, right? Even Peter, the guy who, you know, cuts people's ears off, I'm sure he was like, Jesus, you're, you're taking this thing too far, right? And so this, if they have the right to say, what sign do you show us in doing this, these things? And we ask the same questions, right? When we read the scriptures or we feel the sense that God wants to sharpen us or grow us in an area, we're like, wait, wait, hey, what gives you the right to tell me how to live in this area of my life? Wait a minute, wait a minute. The Bible says now, what, what right does the, I don't know what the, I don't know if the Bible really says that because I don't really like that. I don't really agree with that. Therefore, I, what God, what, what right do you have to tell me that I'm your servant? Now, I want to do my own thing. We're all guilty of this, right? We have these places in our life that we hold on to a little too tight. We kind of protect. Say, no, God, you have this, you have this, you can have this, you can have this, open-handed, but this, eh, I'm going to hold on to this one. We do the same thing. We ask, what gives you the authority, God? Same thing in the, Jesus, what gives you the authority to treat the temple and the money changers and people like this? And he answers them, verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? 
but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remember that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So again, we, we would have thought the same thing, right? Well, they're standing right there by the temple, right? They're, they're, obviously, he's talking about this temple. And they're like, wait, that doesn't make sense. Three days? It took 46 years to build this thing. And John tells us, kind of helps us here. He says, but he was really talking about his body. He was talking about himself. He was, he was um, confessing to them, saying, I am the temple, I am the new temple. I'm, I'm the new dwelling place of God. I am with the people. We don't need the temple anymore. The, the temple of the Old Testament was a pointer to the true temple, Jesus. He's the true temple. He's the actual temple. He's the better temple. And in the same way God's presence existed in a physical location in the Old Testament, God wanted all nations to come to this temple in the Old Testament to be able to see what God's people are like and see what God is like. This is one of the main purposes of having a physical location so the nations could come and see who God is like and what God's people are like. But Jesus is different now. What does Jesus do? Through his spirit, Jesus sends out his followers and disciples, to go to the nations, to go to the ends of the earth, to then preach the gospel, preach the good news about Jesus, because it's not about a physical location anymore. It's not about the temple. It's not about the sacrificial system. It's not about those things anymore. It is about Jesus. He is the new temple. And again, this would have blown the disciples' minds when they are first hearing these things. And it, gets, and it doesn't stop there. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. He says this, talking to the church. Do you not know, and this, those, this you here is a you all, right? It's plural. It's like y'all, right? You all, y'all. Do you not know that you are God's temple, plural, and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Again, with this, this thick background of this temple theology, this is, this is mind-blowing to them. Because for so, thousands of years, the temple was a physical location. And then Jesus comes on, and they're just still trying to get their minds wrapped around that. That, okay, Jesus is the new temple, right? He's the better temple. He's the actual true temple. But how do we fit into this? Well, he's the head, and we are his body, so we are actually the temple as well. Paul goes on in, in, in a few chapters later in 1 Corinthians 6. He says this, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with the price, so glorify God in your body. Say, so you're the temple now. You're the dwelling place of God. And this, this, again, this is a you plural, so this is for the church. Obviously, we're, we're, we have, it's, there's um, implications for us in that because individuals make up the church. But first, let's talk about the church, us corporately, right? What does this mean for us, for the church to now be the temple of God with Jesus as the head? Well, first it means um, we function like the temple, right? So think about how the temple functioned, right? This is, this is where um, you, you really got a picture of what God was like in the Old Testament. You were able to come and worship and honor and see God's people interact around the temple and these festivals and these celebrations and these acts of worship, right? So we function in the sense as a new temple, the people of God, not our building. There's, there's nothing holy about this place that we're meeting in now or any other church, right? What we do here is holy. 
What we do here is very, very important. Worshiping, honoring God, singing together. All of those things are very important, but there's nothing holy about this building. It's the people that are the temple and with Jesus as the head. Now, this is the danger for us as, a, as church or churches, right? It's, it's how we act, how our witness as a church tells the world, communicates something about who God is. There's a lot of examples of this, but right now, one of the ones that just, it hurts every time I think about it is, is the word evangelical, right? This word evangelical has gotten so watered down, misused. People take that word and use it to, to push agendas that the church has no, no, no um, business with, nothing biblical, just pushing issues kind of with this tag of evangelical. And evangelical literally means the people of the gospel, the people of the good news, And it's sad that that word gets used for so many other things than it being the people of the good news. This is a way, as a church, we can distort the view of who God really is, the person of Jesus, who Jesus really is. And we can distort it in so many different ways and so many different angles. When we take what God meant for worship, honor, and use it for something else. We don't have people you know, in, around here outside or in the lobby selling things, right? Selling things and scrape skimming off the top and taking money. That's not our issue, but the principle still stands. What do we do that takes away from the purpose of the church as the church? It's an honest question that we have to ask ourselves, right? But there's also an individual aspect too, right? It also means that God is dwelling in each one of us. We can see ourselves as little stones with the Holy Spirit inside of us and all put on top of each other. We are raised up into a a spiritual temple, the church, right? And so if if it means that God's Spirit is dwelling in us, and I think we just need to spend more time wrapping our minds around that. What does that mean? It means his kingdom lives inside of us. It means his rule and his reign as a king now is inside of us. We can experience heaven based off the Holy Spirit living inside of us now. Again, he's calling us the temple, the place where heaven and earth meet met in the Old Testament. The temple was God's footstool, right? This this, This imagery that we have from the temple, we bring it over into the fact that we are the temple. This is this is mind-blowing, it will change the way we live if we imagine ourselves, we have the presence of God inside of us. Where it once was this beautiful, giant building where people come from hundreds of miles around to check it out, now we have it inside of each one of us. And now God is rebuilding that temple through us. That's called building his church. It's building his church from all tribes, tongues, and nations. So what does this mean for us? Well, we have to remember that God is angry at sin. He's angry at sin, and we see that clear in this passage. But what is he really angry about with sin? Well, he's anger, he, he's, it's this righteous anger because he hates what sin does to his image bearers. He hates what sin does to the people he created. He hates what sin does to the bride of Christ, the church. He hates it, and he will clean it out. Revelation refers to God's anger with sin to the wrath of the Lamb in Revelation. The wrath of the lamb. So that lamb, that sweet lamb, gentle, pure white lamb, he has wrath, right? That's the lion side of Jesus coming out. Jesus has a passion and a zeal for you to love God above everything else. 
He wants you to have freedom and joy and hope and peace and getting your identity from him and your value from him. He wants that for you. He wants that for us. He wants that. He's zealous and passionate that we would experience that. And he's going to drive out things that get in the way of that. He's going to want to move out the clutter through his spirit. He's going to bring conviction to move those things out. So part of us being a follower of Jesus is that, that thing we did earlier with the confessions. God, where, where am I not loving you today? Where am I not finding peace in you? Where am I not believing that you want what's best for me? Where do, where do, where do I, where do I um, what gets in the way of me truly believing you're my father who loves me and I'm your child? Where is that inside of us? Let's look at verse 22. Last verse we'll look at today in John. When therefore he was raised from the dead, and he's already, he said this, right? He's just said um, who he is and he's the temple. It says, when he, therefore, when he raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. So what John is saying, he's, 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 he's going into the future and he's looking back as he's writing this and he's saying, when, when he said this, they didn't quite get it at first, but then when he, did, when he did come back from the dead, when he did rise from the dead, they said, oh, yeah. Like, he said that. When he cleansed the temple, he said that he was the temple. And then in three days, he would raise it back up. And so they think back and they remember. It says they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So they believed. And this was kind of one of those moments of that things clicked for the disciples. You see this a few times later on, right around maybe the death of Jesus, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, where things clicked for those early followers of Jesus. And this is one of those places. It's like, oh, they put it together. He is who he said he was. He did, he was the temple. He is the temple. He's alive. He rose from the dead on the third day. And this blew their minds and changed everything. This was kind of the first domino that fell for those early disciples. In that moment, they would have realized he is the temple, but he's also the sacrifice. He's the lamb that died for the sins of the world. But then he's also the priest. He's our high priest. And no one can come to God unless we come through the priest, right? The priest is the one who mediates for, between God and the people. So Jesus is the, the temple, he's the sacrifice, and he's the priest. He's all of those. And that encompasses, those identities of Jesus encompass the good news. Jesus provided, has provided a way for sinful, rebellious human beings, like God's people in the Old Testament, like the people we see in the New Testament, and like People today, all of us, sinful, rebellious human beings, he has provided a way for us to dwell with God. Not just believe in God, not just have a relationship with God, but provided a way that we can be the temple of God through the Holy Spirit, that he can dwell in us, that he can dwell inside of us. Jesus has provided the way. And notice here in this temple analogy, you're not the one who cleans, cleans the temple. Like the, the Old Testament folk in, 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 in the Old Testament, they, when, when Jesus was coming in and, 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 and before even in, in Amos, it wasn't God's people aren't the ones that clean the temple. They couldn't. They wouldn't. They couldn't do that. So God had to judge them in the Old Testament to get the temple cleaned out. Jesus, he doesn't say, hey, money changers, you guys clean this stuff up. When I come back, it better be cleaned up. No. He just does it. He has the power and authority to white clean the temple. He has the power and authority to clean us up. We don't have that authority. We don't have that ability. We don't have the power to clean ourselves up. He is the one that cleans the temple. He's the one that cleanses us, gives us the Holy Spirit, makes us alive, gives us grace and mercy. 
And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, he's, in, he's inviting you to believe in him. He's inviting you to, 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 to receive his grace and mercy that will allow his spirit to come into your life and to dwell with you. He wants you to know that you can start fresh today. He's here with us. He said God's presence is here when, his, when, when the saints gather, God's presence is here. He wants you to receive his grace today if you're not a follower of Jesus. So believe, have faith in him. Receive his grace and his mercy. Don't, don't be prideful and say, I got this on my own. I can do this on my own. Be humble and say, I need a savior. I need, some, I need help. I don't have life figured out. I need God's presence in my life. I need my sin to be taken care of so there's not this guilt um, around my neck anymore. Now, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, because this is a clear application for us. Verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, right? So that's the, that's the truth, right? So this is who you are now. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Next, you are not your own. Like, you don't belong to yourself. You're not your own. You're not your own person. You're not, you're not the captain of your ship. That is not who you are as a, as a child of God. It says, for you were bought with a price. So what? So glorify God with your body. So glorify him. Honor him. Take care of the temple, right? Take care of the temple. Ask hard questions about what is getting in the way of you worshiping God. Who are the money changers in your life, in your heart, in your mind that is causing you to not be able to love God and love others? We have to think about this. We have to reflect on this. So here are three questions I want to end with, three kind of reflection questions. If we had time, I would probably stop and allow us to pray and think about these things. Um, but I, I, want these, I want you to go home, and this is application. This is homework, right? Thinking about these things, spending some time in prayer with God, reflecting on these things. First is what is cluttering God's house, right? What is cluttering the, the gathering of um, the brothers and sisters in Christ on Sunday morning for us or for you? Like, do you come prepared for this place? Do you come prepared to worship and honor God through song? Do you come prepared with an open heart to receive God's word, whether that's through the preaching, through prayer, through confession, through assurance, through call to worship, all the different ways through communion, all the different ways that truth comes at us on a Sunday morning? Are we prepared for that? Is there clutter? Maybe as simple as, hey, you need to get more sleep on Saturday night so you're not dragging on Sunday morning. Maybe as simple as that. Right? Maybe you're really stressed out trying to get out of the house, and it, it's kind of distracting on Sunday morning. I don't know what it is. It could be a lot of different things. Right? But what is that? Because this is an important time. This is really yeah, nothing special about this building. There's nothing holy about this building. But when God's people get together, God's presence is there, and that becomes a holy place. That becomes a holy place. Second, what is cluttering my life? So let's get individual. Right? Let's get personal a little bit with ourselves. Right? What is cluttering my life? The temple. What is, to, as you're talking to God, what is keeping me from experiencing your presence? What clutter is there? If there's some kind of dark, unrepented sin, absolutely that would get in the way of that. So, so deal with that. Confess that to someone else. Confess that to God. But I'm, I'm talking about the neutral things as well. Just the clutter, right? Nothing, nothing sinful necessarily. If there's all these things that are crowding out 
your, your temple, your ability to think about God, your ability to focus on God, your ability to spend time with God on a daily basis, your ability to, 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 to love people well, all of those things. So what, that question, again, what is cluttering my life? What is cluttering my temple, to use that imagery? And last, um, just like the temple um, in Jerusalem had a court of the Gentiles, we have a court of the Gentiles in our own life. Because again, God is is extending his kingdom by building his church, and he's doing that through us. He sent us out through the power of the Holy Spirit. Every one of us has the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has sent us out into the world. It's not just the missionaries who go really far places. It's not the people who, just the people who relocate to another location to plant a church or something. All of us have the calling through the power of the Holy Spirit to, to engage people, love people who are different than us, who believe different than us, who, who, who aren't churchgoers. And we do that through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. How, so to use that imagery, what is the court of Gentiles like in your own life? Do you have space? Do you have space around your life to truly love people well, to spend time with them, to have meaningful conversations? Or is that court of Gentiles in your life getting crowded out by something else? Again, may not be bad things, but it may be lesser things than the calling that he's given the church to make disciples of all tribes, tongues, and nations. And he's building the church. And he's doing that through little temples like us who come together in a big temple for the church and churches all over the world. Let's pray. God, so thankful that you help us with this temple imagery that we have the Bible where something that was so significant in the life of your people for thousands of years, the centerpiece of everything that we just can't get our minds around unless we have an orthodox Jewish background. We don't really understand what the temple was like. So I'm thankful for your word that we can dig in and understand the, the imagery and even through how, how the temple connects to the church and how we're now the temple and how the temple was designed in the Old Testament, we have a design that we're now the temple. All of those things, Lord, all this, these layers of things that we can dig into. I'm thankful for your word. And I pray that this would spur us on to learn more about the temple and learn more what it means for us to be the temple, the new temple, with Jesus as the head of the temple, as he is the head of the body. So help us. Help us be reflective over your body, your, 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 your bride, when we come together to worship. Help us be reflective over our own personal walks with you, the little temples. And I also pray that we're reflective and we're, we're moved and we're honest with ourselves. Do we make time for other people? Do we make time for people who don't know Jesus, who are far from God, that we want them to experience the hope and the peace and the love that we've experienced by becoming your children. God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.